When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER. We don't want bands that are original. We don't want original music anymore. We don't want films that... We want remakes. We want remakes of stuff. We want stuff that sounds familiar to something but isn't that, so it feels like we're discovering something new. Hi, I'm Raihan Salam with the Vice Podcast, and I'm joined today by Reggie Watts, a comedic entertainer a multi-instrumentalist, a man who is so many things to so many people. Reggie, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So, Reggie, what is jash? It sounds like some terrible skin condition one might have. Well, you can get a jash if you're not too careful. It would depend on which bars you hang around. Yes, definitely. Or which bars you use. Sometimes you have sensitive skin. No, uh, jash essentially is a... I guess a conglomerate of uh, four comedic uh, entities. So it's uh, Sarah Silverman, Michael, Sarah, Tim, and Eric, and myself. Um, uh, and silent partner Vladimir Putin. Yes, Vla- yeah, Vladimir. Yeah, of but course. We don't talk about that. Very yeah. silent. Yeah, very silent. Um, Pussy riot. Um, no, but um, but also, uh, yeah, Daniel Kellison is the executive producer, and so I think it was kind of his idea, his and Sarah's kind of. Musings that led to this kind of Google YouTube relationship, and then inviting these other partners or whatever they call it on the site, luminaries, um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and it's just a it's just a YouTube channel that features all of the weird shit that we make, specifically with Jash producing it. Mm-hmm. That's kind of it. Reggie, what is your agenda? Do you have one? Do you have a plan for destruction? <laughs> Do you have a plan for delight? <laughs> Do you have a ten-year plot that you've been slowly implementing? Um, 
I do have an agenda. Uh, well, I don't know if I have an agenda. Do, do you feel comfortable revealing your agenda? I mean, I'd, of course. I mean, I have to think about it. But I mean, I, I don't know. I think it's a certain form of disruption and uh, discomfort, but it's uh, under a benevolent um, You're making me very uncomfortable feeling. right now, so you're succeeding. Well, I'm trying to do it benevolently. <laughs> uh, you know, it's like, hey, man, blah, blah, blah. Oh, oh but not so bad. No, I mean, uh, yeah, I guess it's just about... It's about, yeah, a form of disruption or just kind of, yeah, just disrupting a, a certain thought process or, or ways that we go about things and just kind of like reframing it or re, re or decontextualizing, I guess. So, so rattling people. I mean, someone who, you know, I look at things in this one way, this is the way my community looks at it, and then suddenly I see Reggie. And he's just sort of like, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. and he kind of discombobulates and mm-hmm. sort of. But what is the outcome of this disruption? You know what I mean? Like, what is the best case scenario for I come to your show and then you know things are seen a little off kilter, a little askew, and you know what comes from that? Well, I think it's a form of destabilization. I think that when people are destabilized from their expectations, I think it it actually frees the mind. It actually puts the mind into a state that it wants to be in, which is. We have a tendency of wanting to define things so much that we feel that we truly understand or we, we feel safe about our understanding about reality, which is an important aspect to have. Otherwise, we would go insane. But it's also another, uh, I think the mind naturally wants to kind of think of things in many different ways and to explore things. And I think that for me, it's when I, when I perform, it's mostly about, well, okay, subverting expectation, but getting to a point at which people just kind of surrender to an experience. And then hopefully that inspires some kind of self-exploration or just immersion to let them be in the experience. Um, uh, Or take away, perhaps, I mean, (laughs) at best, you know, take away something that makes them think of things differently. When did you start thinking along these lines? Like, when you were a little kid, were you aware of this idea that people had a certain expectation of you and that you could kind of disrupt that expectation? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, when I was a kid, I mean, I grew up in Montana, so there weren't a lot of there weren't a lot of black kids or kids of other races, really. I mean, there was probably maybe, you know, 15 total in the school system, you know, that you could say, like, a half-Thai kid, a, uh, you know, uh, me, half-white, half-black kid, uh, you know, two black guys. Did you uh, all form a musical troupe? Yeah, yeah, we were just like, the minorities. <laughs> um, it's like, I love the minorities. Um, no, it was, you know, it was just like, there wasn't a lot of, you just didn't see a lot of uh, similarities, you know, like, or I didn't see a lot of similarities, at least uh, to other people physically that look like me. But, uh, I definitely love the fact that people expected, well, they didn't quite know what to expect, really, I think, because all they had were movies and TV. So if they saw a black kid, they were like, well, on Brewster's Millions, you know, uh, you know, black people act like this, you know, or, you know, or, you know, Eddie Murphy does this or uh, Bill Cosby does this. So they just had TV and movies and you know, they had to get to know me, so they had to kind of like go, well, here's a dude that looks like this, and then I'm not behaving the way that they do. So in a way, Montana was a good place to grow up because people didn't really have too many expectations. One thing I wonder about is being in that kind of environment that's, you know, pretty homogeneous. I wonder if actually you noticed more distinctions among white people than you would have noticed otherwise. You know, because like to an outsider, like let's say I'm coming from some super diverse place, I'm coming from LA, you know, what have you, coming to Montana, and I might see this undifferentiated mass of kind of white Montanans. Whereas you, as someone who is in that culture and attuned to it, you might have been a little bit 
better able to pick up on some of those differences? Oh, definitely. I mean, most. I mean, growing up, it was mostly mostly white population, but I definitely saw differences in people. I mean, the, I mean, that's the funny thing. That's something that I like to play off of very much. So it's like in you know, like when, when we this whole idea of like majorities and my, minorities and things like that, which is completely fictional because like everything is completely. It's it depends on how you frame it, what you're comparing it to, that creates these majorities or minorities. But um, but specifically. Uh, growing up with like you know there was like the, the the kids that were kind of like lower lower middle class or like working class and they like you know ate really shitty food and um, you know cussed a lot and were chewing by the age of ten um, you know there were like you know the kind of preppier kids there were you know all those class systems but then there were like people from different heritages you know people with Greek backgrounds and people with Italian backgrounds and Polish backgrounds and so. It was just such a mishmash. I just see people as people. I've always just kind of seen people as, yeah. as people, and I don't really attribute race too much to, and that's from, I think, growing up in a mixed race, mixed cultural, um, mostly white um, place, and then moving to Seattle, and then a, a, a little bit more minority in, in, in the mix, and then moving to New York, and like a lot of minority in the mix. But um, I think all of that kind of prepared me to kind of see people as people. And then of course with the genetic findings that most people, I mean, every, all, everything that we see that's different visually is just super, it's completely superficial and that we're all the same race. I mean, completely, there's no, back in the day when they're like, well, black people are a certain race and they've got certain traits. It's like, no, those are just adaptive Well, you know, one genetics. thing that, it is interesting the way that you have these like micro groups, like, you know, the Kalenjin of Kenya. This is a group that has some distinctive qualities, you know, kind of, sure. or like this temperature, you know, you'll have. But I think what I find interesting about what you said so when you're talking about those class distinctions in Montana, I mean, one thing, and like the way the preppy kids dressed and like chewing dip or, mm. or whatever, what I find interesting is how, how permeable things are or aren't. You know, like, is there a moment where like the Greek kid who is this way could then like wear this kind of a denim jacket with like, uh, you know, stonewashed denim jacket with like um, a purple unicorn on it? And do they suddenly like change categories? Are they able to do that? Or then in a community that's very tight-knit, people call you on it. But like, what sure. are the ways that you can shift subtly from one thing to another? And I feel like, you know, was that something, were you like someone who moved from group to group? Were you able to kind of like tweak one thing and then, you know, kind of enter a different category? Yeah, I mean, it's right on the money, definitely, for sure. I mean, you know, you know, when we're younger, we don't really have that association, like, too much differentiation aside from like major things. Like yeah. if a kid like didn't have, was born without an arm or something, like, he'd be like, wow, he doesn't have an arm. I have an right. arm, well, that's weird. But, um, uh, or normal. But, um, you know, as, as I grew older, yeah, I was very, I was interested in all the different social classes. And in junior high, I was kind of a weird mix of, uh, you know, it was like a small class group. So. When I went to junior high, it kind of expanded. There were more kids, and so suddenly I was in this like more social environment, and there were more, um, you know, uh, there were more deviations from yeah. the from the former class. People just kind of went, you know, out into these different social spectrums, more sports or more academia or more academic, uh, more uh, uh, kind of like outs outsider smoking on a rock, you know, like all those started to, to divvy out. Then all the movies started to come out, like John Hughes movies and things, and which kind of like shed light on the the identity of divi class division within a young population. And so I became interested in trying to navigate between all of them because I, I found them all equally compelling. And I also 
liked getting along with everybody. But also as someone who was kind of outside and a little marginal, it gave you that freedom to actually dip in and dip out, you know, as you chose. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, they, they just knew me as like the weird kid. And, um, you know, so junior high was kind of like a nothing. I wasn't really... I liked breakdancing, but I wasn't a very good breakdancer. <laughs> I, I liked, um, I really liked music. I mean, I studied music. I played an orchestra, so I was definitely like an orchestra, I guess, nerd or whatever the hell they were called. And then I, I you know, I was in debate and I loved um, math and science and science fiction and fantasy stuff. And I played Dungeons and Dragons, but I also was really good friends with like the popular girl or like the, I was friends with them. I wasn't like ever like, you know, attractive to them, but I was definitely friends of hot girls, um, which I will take, I will take any day over not being friends with the hot girl. But, um, but yeah, uh, so I was always interested in balance. Yeah. Like how can the tough bully kid, like I remember in high school, I, I, like in high school especially, I really went for all the different classes. The first year I was really kind of a nothing going into sports. And uh, I just wanted to, I didn't even like football. I just decided to join football because I thought... Take this in as an experience. Yeah, like yeah. what is it like to be a football player? And so, you know, I joined football. I was a terrible football player. I couldn't remember any of the plays. But um, I remember there was a kid who was known to have like the, the hardest punch in school. And like no one messed with him. And my school was about 1,300 kids. And like, and I just remember one day everyone was playing the flinching game. <laughs> and I was totally trying to avoid this kid in the locker room. But at one point, I just turned around and he just happened to be right in my field of vision. And he just kind of went like that. And I was like, ugh. And I was like, fuck. <laughs> and, and he was like, 10 punches. And I'm like, oh, to the arm, you know? And I was like, no. <laughs> and so he like, he like punched You still me. have a welt yeah, on that I still, arm. Yeah, it's still, one arm is slightly bigger than the other. Um, there's a memory. If someone grabs me too hard, I'm like, ah! It's like a flashback. Um, but he hit me nine times. The bell rang for class or whatever. He, he didn't give me the 10th one. So for like three days, he kept saying, like, I owe you one. I owe you a punch. And I was like, God damn it. The whole time, I was like just dreading it, dreading it, dreading it. And then finally... He, we were in the locker room, and I just went up to him, and I was like, let's just get this over with. Just, give me the, just punch me. And he just went, like that. That's really nice. And I was like, what a badass, man. What a, what a badass. And it was cool to like kind of be in that circle and like understand. Well, that's like, actually really quite something. This kid sounds like a pretty interesting person. I mean, he's like, he's he was cool like guy. terrifying you with this, you know, and then and then suddenly you were willing to take it. And it was like, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I think he just kind of respected the fact like he was tormenting me. It was like that movie Three O'clock High, very similar to that. Like the Classic. whole time this guy's gonna beat him up, although that guy wasn't as nice. <laughs> but um, but it's definitely like you're gonna have to face your fear and there's nothing you can do to avoid it. It's it's interesting to me that you were so self-conscious about this idea of wanting to try different things. It's like, it sounds that you didn't seem super vulnerable as an early adolescent. It sounds like you felt pretty confident and solid in who you were and thus, which is rare. I mean, where, where do you think that came from? Just the... I, think it's, I think it's the multicultural, multiracial upbringing. You know, my mom, mom's French and white. My dad was black and he's from Ohio. And, um, you know, she spoke French. I spoke French, you know, um, and Did that give her a sense of, I mean, it definitely, I assume it gave her a sense of separateness from, like, the Montana scene, <laughs> but did that also give her a sense of, like, I'm a little separate? 
corporate slash above this a bit, and like I'm not like going to be intimidated or whatever by. Well, she's I mean French first of all, so yeah, not to and not to generalize. And no, 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 but no, yeah. she's no, but it's totally true. I mean, she's got like a very strong egalitarian sensibility. So anytime she sends something unjust, but I mean, I also have to realize that my mom and dad got together in like 1967, which was crazy for a mixed race. Couple to be together. Europe was a little, little bit more progressive mm-hmm. than the United States, but in a way, like them to decide to be together, and then him bringing her back to the United States was, was already like, such was a choice crazy. about yeah. a certain a, a choice about what they believed in and yeah. kind of what they cared about. Yeah. yeah, and my mom was very sensitive about race. You know, she was very sensitive about the way they would people would talk to my dad or treat my dad, and she would say things to them, to him, or to them, and. Uh, so she she had that sensibility, and she was also protective of me as well. And my dad was kind of you know also the similar. He would say like you know stick up for yourself and don't let people. So my way of getting back to people wasn't to like necessarily fight back. It was to either make them laugh and make them kind of just see me as like something harmless, or to make fun of them in a way that they're not aware of me making fun of them in. Um, and so those were my those were my weapons, yeah. and and uh, mostly just like humor. I just wanted people to. I liked you know. It's like I'm a. I like it when people like me, you know. But it started when I was a kid. I just I just needed that um, because I wanted to hang out with everybody. I didn't want there to be tons and tons of divisions. It also seems that you know you took you've. It sounds as though you've taken being like this weird kid in school who is just you know doing your own thing and feeling pretty solid and confident, but also being playful in this way, and you somehow turn it into a job. <laughs> and I wonder, I mean, you know, and that's not necessarily the, an intuitive thing, and you're interested in math and science and everything else, and so, you know, what, was there a moment, like, in Montana, just when you were thinking, somehow this is, like, something I want to make something out of, like, I want to make this my life, this project of, like, this curiosity and this, you know, desire to entertain, like, how did that unfold? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. I've thought about that, and I'm tr- I try to put myself back there. I don't know if I was like so conscious as to say like this is what I'm gonna, this is what I'm gonna do. I think it was more. I think it felt to me at that time more like I can't not do something like this. So I'm just gonna keep doing this, and I'm gonna move to places where creative stuff is happening, and I'll figure out something. Something I'll figure out something. Like that was kind of. You're about to be on a sitcom. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about it? Oh, uh, which one? Oh gosh, well tell me about the one you're most excited about. Uh, I guess I don't want to make you choose. Well, tell me about all of them. I mean, there's, I mean, well, I don't know. I haven't heard about the other one if they picked it up yet. <laughs> but I did make a pilot for a potential sitcom called um, Bad Advice from My Brother. I think that's what it's called. Um, and we shot a pilot for it, and it's kind of like a 1990. It feels like a mid 90s dude sitcom. It's it's really it really is like very just straight down the road little brother you know does badly in school because of the influences of his older brother who lives in New York the father gets mad at the older brother so to punish the older brother sends the little brother to live <laughs> with his older brother to like give him guidance or whatever they have to deal with each this other. It sounds like incredibly reckless parenting. Oh, yeah. completely, <laughs> completely. I mean, the whole thing is like. You know, it's kind of dysfunctional behavior, but um, but it's it's great because Miles Fisher is 
such a strange man. Uh, you know, he's like very ambitious. He's an internet-minded man, but his family at the same time is like incredibly wealthy and deals with the banking system. So it's perfect for his character, who is a Wall Street dude. Yeah, and he's corrected some of the people who, write, who are writing the script about like how people would actually approach finances, which I thought was kind of interesting. So he's like the real deal. I would love the show if you played the fourteen-year-old boy. Oh, and like you're wearing like overalls and sort of like you've got a boombox. Like no one notices. <laughs> like kind of like a like a stuck. Version of Quantum Leap. Like I like I the never... way Beverly Hills and Two and O. They were all like forty years old, and they were like playing. Oh, I know, I know, I know. You're like, no, that's. <laughs> I believe that. There's a lot of soft but who, filters. Who are you on the show? Are you like a? I'm. I'm like. It's like the classic like weirdo friend <laughs> that like hangs out and says weird shit, and that Miles's character like just thinks I can do no wrong. Like like, like I'm like his like kind of weird dysfunctional shaman or something like that. And then his little brother, played by Mike Castle, who's incredible, um, you know, is just kind of like the straight dude, kind of like a young Tom Hanks, like straight dude. He's brilliant. But it's, so it's interesting. That, that's the sitcom. I don't know what's going to happen with that. But um, who knows? Maybe if it gets picked up, it'd be great because it films here in New York. Well, what I, one thing I wonder about is, and I, I brought it up partly because I'm thinking, Something like a sitcom, this is the kind of thing that there are many people, many people aspire to this their entire lives. It's a source of legitimacy. It's a way, you know, kind of something that, and it's this kind of recognition. But it seems that you have been trying to do something very distinctive, artistically mm-hmm. and otherwise. And, you know, I asked you about the agenda, partly mm-hmm. because not everyone necessarily has an agenda beyond, I want to be recognized. You know what I mean? And I kind of right. like want to, like, there's an ego satisfaction. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's an mm-hmm. ego satisfaction to mention. Sure. So, I mean, for you, Appearing in sitcoms, you know, and working towards this legitimacy and this kind of like, is that a means to an end? Is this kind of something that it's a side project? You know, I always tell this to my agents; it's not what they want to hear. But I'm just like, t- TV and movies for me is a side project. Like me, like some, like auditioning for something or like someone asking me to be a part of something, which is amazing. It's great that people, you know, think think to ask me to do things, which is awesome. But that's not my main thing. My main thing is I just want to be able to make anything I want to make in any medium I want to make at any point in time as quickly as possible. That's really all I'm concerned with. So all of these opportunities are great to gain experience. Like, yeah. how does TV work? How does it function? What's the production structure? So it's like joining the football team on exactly. some level. It's kind of like, let me figure out, let me navigate this. Is, but is there also an ego dimension of like, so for someone you could say that, hey, like, you know, I'm like an alterna kid, but like I can be on the football team. You know sure. what I mean? So there's like a level of like I can do this thing. Yeah. I don't want to do it necessarily. That's not <laughs> yeah. what I'm about. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. so is there like a little bit of that? Like I can do this like legitimate, you know, thing, but I can also yeah. I mean, it's like I see how far you can go. Yeah, like how like can I do something like this? It's like oh, that's interesting. I can because the funny thing, uh, the funny thing is, is I I love I love TV and I love movies. I love specific TVs and movies. I can't stand commercials, so that drives me nuts. So. But I watch what I can without commercials, and I'm really involved in it, and I, and I, and I love watching TV again, because all throughout the 90s I didn't watch TV at all, because there was no such thing as streaming, non-commercial And you moved to Seattle, TV. and you were like not in a life situation where you were going to be no, like, yeah. No, and I, just, and I didn't want to be around a TV. I just had, I had a TV, but I had a VCR. Yeah. You know, so I just watched movies. I didn't, I, you know, I just couldn't handle the commercials, so... So I you know, became interested in TV, so, but I was also a TV kid, so I loved watching TV. So When you say TV kid, yeah. do you mean like you knew 
like the whole TV schedule from like 3 p.m. to like 10, or like what kind are we talking of, about? Yeah, kind of. I mean, I knew there weren't that many channels then. So there weren't that many channels. No, there was like maybe at the time 11 channels or something like that when I was growing yeah. up. Yeah, and then we got, of course, cable came along and then HBO, Cinemax, which Showtime. Yeah. That yeah. was crazy. And MTV. Uh, then it was and, anarchy. Then like suddenly people started smoking crack and I know. Like murdering each other in the well, street. Yeah. Well, we definitely heard a lot more about crack. <laughs> a lot more stories about it. Um, but yeah, it was. I mean, I just I just enjoyed TV. I I loved getting lost in those worlds, and I loved. And I loved, watched a lot of PBS too, a lot of British programming, um, and I just I loved it. I loved like mysteries. I loved. When I was a little kid. I just loved like detective mysteries. What was it? I mean, so because one thing I'm fascinated by Anglophilia in general, but one mm-hmm. aspect that I, I always think it's okay. So, you know, you have this country, this island, you know, Mm -hmm. you've got like 65 million people on it. And then you realize there's this like mutantoid, crazy, multiracial, polyglot, bastard child of your country Uh that has like five times as many people. Uh And it's like, you know, it's like, Uh I always find that it's the the relationship. But then like, we're so fascinated with that thing. Like, what was it about those shows that you found compelling? Like, was it that it was just like, you know, it's like similar but different or what was it? Well, I think it's, I mean, I've always been interested in the past. And so the BBC had a lot of shows that were slow paced, that were more immersive in the time period. So if it was like, uh, I don't know, Inspector Poirot, which wasn't my favorite, but like Inspector Poirot. No, but or, that was the shit. I it was, it was the shit, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was like, but he wasn't, I mean, I, my, my spoke French, and I was like, that's not a French guy. It's a terrible French accent. <laughs> he's, he's also accent. Belgian. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, he was French-Belgian, <laughs> yeah. but still terrible. It's yeah, a terrible yeah. French, <laughs> French accent, a, a Wallonian accent, not very good. But, but I, I liked the slow-paced immersion. That that and I also was a fan. I love fantasy stuff. I love like dragons and knights and creatures and magic and sorcerers <laughs> yeah. and stuff like that. And so, the you know the English accent just takes you. It just puts you right there because King Arthur and all of those legends are all kind of like Celtic, Gaelic, Britain uh, area kind of druidic past uh, Anglo. Influences. You have a druidic quality, which I, I, I like. The dru- I like the druids. Whenever I, whenever I go to, to the UK, I always talk about how like people are descendants of druids, and I'm like, you got to bring it back. <laughs> <laughs> they love it. Yeah, it's just I'm just fascinated with the ancient the ancient cultures. And I was also a big Egypt kid. I loved Egypt or the you know Mesopotamia. I was just very fascinated with those those past. And you know, English was like I could understand it. <laughs> So was that when the mimicry began? Was that yes. kind of like learning from the shows? Yeah, all the English stuff. Like when I go to England and people are like, oh, I thought you were English. It's like, because I, I think probably at least 40% of my life I've spoken in an English accent. <laughs> so I, I know I, I just loved getting all the nuances of those accents. But you don't, I mean, do you bleed in? So for example, like when you are in the South, when you're in England, I mean, are you bleeding into the speech around you because of your desire to please the people around you? Or is it not that it's like, it's like very self-conscious, like click, you know, I'm gonna like do this thing. There's a little bit of thought behind it, like as to like, if I come out and I go South Carolina and I'm talking like this, I'm like, hey guys, how are you today? Um, I was just, uh, you know, at your store the other day and I was talking to Miss Smithson. But when I'm talking like this, it's just like, I have to stop and think, is this kind of insulting? Um, Or is this beneficial? Is there a reason I would be using this voice? Uh, In England, I use an English accent just because I feel comfortable enough with it that I can forget that I'm using the accent and I can just be very natural on stage. And if I'm being that way, the audience will forget. They'll just go, oh, this is this guy. This is the way this guy speaks. But 
something like other areas, things will bleed in, but I will only use them if I'm confident enough that there is a purpose for using it. And also, like in Ireland, I can kind of do an Irish accent, but I'm not confident enough. And the Irish are hypercritical of people doing their accent and essentially being racist, you know, to the Irish, right. which happens a lot. And like talking about leprechauns and stuff like that. And it's like never mention anything about a leprechaun or four-leaf yeah. clovers. They'll just feel like punching you in the face. They really <laughs> they, don't like and it. And they might. Yeah, and they yeah, might. Yeah, and they might, yeah. depending it's, on the time of day. Sad, yeah. But, but um, you know, it's just one of those things where I... It, yeah, I, I have to think about what I'm what I'm about to do. If I'm speaking, if I'm performing in a country that doesn't primarily speak English, like uh, that most people don't speak English, like Italy, uh, Southern Italy, or something like that, or Spain, um, Southern Spain, I would definitely do a gibberish language that has elements of either Italian or Spanish in it. Um, and more physical humor and music. The gibberish languages are terrifying. They're <laughs> absolutely fascinating. So, I mean, tell us a little bit about the concept behind the gibberish language. <laughs> well, it's like, you know, I'm too lazy to learn certain languages. So I listen to the way that they sound and try to kind of evoke the essence of it. Um, if I'm in, like, Scandinavia, um, you know, so if I'm saying, world of child of yod. Like, like that kind of has like a cadence that's kind of pan Scandinavian, Pandinavian. And, uh, and, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, I just, it just like I, I find it, I find it fascinating. So if I'm in, like, if it's Pandanavian brings to mind Pandanavian Viking suits, but yeah, but please, yeah, yeah, of course, Pandanavian. Oh uh, yeah, right, right. <laughs> Two cultures together, China and <laughs> Scandinavia. Finally, um, uh, or you know, or Holland, or uh, France, or Germany, or uh, if I go to, well, I did some gigs in Saudi Arabia, and I couldn't really. I felt so constricted. I had to be very. Careful. What I, I, what, what I worry it. about is people in the future, yeah. you know, all human knowledge has been lost. The, the library has been burned down. The digital mm -hmm. cassettes have d deteriorated. Mm -hmm. And they just find your gibberish language. And they try mm -hmm. to reconstruct mm -hmm. languages from your gibberish language. That would be very interesting and terrifying. Uh, yeah, I know. It would be very strange if they... Well, you know, do you remember a book called Snow Crash? Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. Well, they talk about the mother language or the mother tongue, um, you know, like this kind of master language, like that was the beginning of language for humanity or the first, like, fully evolved form of language, spoken language. And uh, I think about that, and I'm like, there must be some way of mixing, not better than Esperanto, like just, just some way of mixing all these various aspects of language together that are enough that if you, I, I kind of look at it as like a, like there's a sub-carrier wave, you know? So like uh, oftentimes like coded messages, messages will sound like a bunch of gibberish or static, you yeah. know, like transmitted messages. But really there's a, there's a, there's a, a message that's encoded underneath it that um, is kind of like the distraction. It's kind of like a duck on water or whatever. It's like what's really happening is under the water, but like you just see a duck and you're like, that's a duck. But like, so the idea of like speaking gibberish, but also projecting an intent and meaning, I don't think it's scientifically, it's not scientific by any means, but it feels like if I do project uh, something meaningful underneath it that potentially meaning can be derived. Do you have a through line? Like when you're speaking gibberish, do you have a kind of sense this is in fact what I'm trying to convey? Not, not totally. It's, mm -hmm. It goes in and out. I would say mostly not. It's, it's mostly me kind of mimicking the way that we 
converse with our body and language-wise and cadence-wise and you know tonality and volume and all of that stuff to make it sound like conversation. Well, it's also just the idea of language as music. I mean, when you think about mm-hmm. language as a series of sounds that mm-hmm. someone who does not speak the language would be indecipherable, uh, that's always very powerful. Um, but I, I wonder, like, what is it that drew you to music initially? Like, was it the idea of a community around it or the idea of a shared experience uh, and creating a shared experience for people? Or Yeah, I mean, I think, well, music was the first thing that I was attracted to as a kid, you know, so I think... Uh, it is the ultimate language, I mean, for people that can hear. But, um, and sometimes people who can't hear, they can still feel subsonic stuff. But, like, uh, it's the most universal language that there, that there is, really. And, um, and so I think I was drawn to that as a kid. It's what made me, uh, why I was interested in learning the piano, why I was interested in uh, playing violin. Um, I just loved music. I was always singing. I was always playing, you know, rhythms, uh, making weird noises, trying to mimic machines and things like that. So, I mean, that's kind of like, that's my main language, I think. And it's a really wonderful thing to be able to travel to, you know, North Korea or something like that um, and, you know, be able to find some musicians and, like, start playing a rhythm and we just start playing together. It's, like, immediate. Everyone understands it um, instantly, instantaneously. And so I think that's, that's, like the kind of strongest base of what I, what I do is music. Did you struggle with it? I mean, when you were just starting out, did it come very naturally to you, or was it something that you really felt like, like you, know, you really put a lot of work into it in that early period of like mastering instruments? I mean, I, I was definitely, I was taking piano lessons, and you know, I started when I was age five, so I just kind of did what my teacher asked, you mm-hmm. know, and I tried to get better at it, but I definitely understood it. I think I had difficulty when it came to reading music, like reading and playing, like sight reading. Uh, I was, I got good to a certain point and then I just became disinterested. I just became more interested in improvising. Once you could improvise, once you kind of felt comfortable and confident, like knowing like, I'm gonna do this and it's gonna create this sound, then you were like. Yeah, I couldn't, I just, it couldn't hold my attention anymore. And my teacher tried and I just stopped doing the homework and like, so my theory kind of went down the drain and you know, I was still playing violin. I was able to read the music on violin, but it was a combination of like listening to what my section was doing and then memorizing the music, um, and also seeing it. And it made sense when I read it. But I just wasn't one of those people that's like, okay, you know, and just be able to play it and like know all the rests and what that symbol means and how long to hold before this note and this note extends and what that means and you know. Uh, that was too much information. It was much easier for me to just improvise. You grew up in a time when musical connoisseurship was actually kind of challenging. Like, if you wanted to get certain records, you could not necessarily get them. Yes. And then when you think about someone who is, you know, a teenager now, mm. they do have, in theory at least, this infinite access to an infinite amount of music. Mm-hmm. And I always wonder about how that shapes the experience. Because, you know, for you, that barrier to entry... Um, you know, and like you were still exposed to this pastiche of different music from different eras and what have you, and able to kind of like you know through your improvisation. But I kind of wonder now because it seems like the sheer volume of material that you can have exposure to. Like I wonder, what, what do you think about it? I mean, do you ever kind of like talk to kind of younger? Uh, I definitely have like the back in my day, you know, <laughs> like problem. But I, I think it's true. Like I really try to check myself on it that I'm not trying to like I'm a, you know I'm from an older perspective. It's like these kids, blah blah. But I think I think. It is. It is. I feel like kids these days have it much harder 
because essentially the corporate entertainment structure um, and even like YouTube, which is like the people's you know in, information library, which is I would say ninety to ninety five percent bullshit, um, is it's it's all just mostly distraction art and business art and it's art that's algorithmical art and um, and what I like to call pastiche bands like a lot of like bands that sound like other bands you know like they're oh they're, they're almost as good as Fleetwood Mac oh the singer sings almost as great as Pat Benatar or like or this like they're kind of a little bit like Nirvana kind right. of a little bit it has that newness feeling kind of like that but it also has it's but it's a bit hard. more Brooklyn-y, a bit and more, a bit Brooklyn-y. more, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's hard, and it's like not to, not to. There's plenty of original groups, but it's not what's celebrated. So, for a teenager to like, and I guess you could argue that when I was in, when I was in Great Falls, Top Forty Radio was Top Forty Radio. It's like what the curators put on the radio and said, these are these are the hits. But I will say that for the most part, I would say at least fifty percent of the music on Top Forty when I was listening to Casey Kasem or whatever was actually good music played by really talented musicians, people who actually studied and, and hit the road and toured for a long time. Kenny Loggins. Kenny Loggins, man. Uh, absolutely. I can't stop listening to Kenny Loggins, uh, Michael McDonald, uh, Heart to Heart. I've been listening to that nonstop for like a month and a half now. Yeah, it's weirdly good. And I'm like, how, you know, like we don't have that or even like, you know, Phil Collins or even Cindy Lauper, which seems silly or whatever, but it was like a wonderful, joyful music. Or, you know, you had like throw, you had people from the fusion age or the R&B fusion age from the 70s, like having solo careers in the 80s. So you still had a lot of people that could play stuff. Or like Van Halen, that was like a band that could so really where, where do you see yourself in relation to figures like that? I mean, because you're, I'm curious, because I mean, you clearly have this kind of musical agenda, this musical project, this kind of thing that you try to do, but do you see yourself in that tradition of like, a, you know, this artist you've identified, like the... I mean, I try, I try to, I try to infuse as much quality as I can in the music that I make. A lot of times when I perform live and it's my show, I have to do pretty rudimentary stuff because I don't really have a lot of time. Like, I don't want to waste people's time yeah. out there with me, like, really building, like, subtle, uh, you know, uh, subtle changes or, like, creating a pre-chorus on this track and then a full chorus. So it's pretty rudimentary, but I try to infuse enough musicianship that, uh, that it feels as though... Um, it feels as though they're getting some kind of an understanding of the possibilities of music, like at least through my experience. And I think it's it's just important. I think, and I try to encourage people. I say it all the time. Sometimes I go on these tirades, you know, kind of like similar to what I was doing about like about bands and you know. But I'll be I'll approach it sarcastically and I'll say, you know, like we don't want bands that are original. We don't want original music anymore. We don't want films that we want remakes. We want remakes of stuff. We want stuff that sounds familiar to something but isn't that, so it feels like we're discovering something new. Like, that thing, I really try to drive in there because I really hope that, that, the, that there is a generation of kids that really are into studying music and to developing their ability to understand music. It's great if someone can take a sampler or they can take like a, you know, um, you know, a uh, whatever, a MIDI interface, gridded MIDI interface, and then put a bunch of active samples and like play it. It's a great evolution. But to understand what music is, the, even a little bit of theory, um, understanding music's from different places around the world, traditional musics, and, and then having that influence what you're doing now, I think is really important. And there are bands that do that. 
Um, and I'm definitely not, I'm not saying that there is none of that, but it's, just, it's harder to find and it's not what, it's not what sells. You know. What I find interesting about, not to accuse you of crankiness, but what's interesting is that I think actually a lot of your music, what's interesting to me about it is that it actually is drawing on this idea that there's a thick cloud of references mm. and things in the universe that your audiences are likely to share. They don't always mm. share it, but they're likely to share. And so then you take from those references. You know, I mean, it seems that you are doing this kind of mixed media kind of stuff that is compelling partly because it's kind of like, oh, you're activating this part of my memory. You know what I mean? It's yes. not like it's kind of drawing yeah. on a kind of this nostalgia for the present, yeah. you know, and it's kind of like, it's like a little refracted, it's a little, and so it's, because that seems like exactly the best version of what we're doing now. When you're talking about algorithmic music, it was interesting, it's like, okay, so let me unpack that, and it's like, yeah. so it's the idea that like, okay, we know exactly that your brain responds to this, people pop, so we will like kind of add these three instruments, and then, then we were like, and we'll give you like a musical boner, and like this is how we will like sell lots of records. Uh -huh. um, but I think that, you know, in a way, that's sort of what you're doing too, right? Because it's kind of, you're trying to access these parts of your brain. It's not done in that you know, corporate, you know, kind of like rigorous way, but it's yeah. kind of, and it's playful. Yeah. But it does seem like, you know, in a world where we have this density of stuff, so much stuff mm -hmm. is being created, that's kind of the only thing you can do. The only thing you can do is make things that are like intra-textual, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I, you know, I had this big discussion on Twitter about um, Blurred Lines, the Robin Thicke song, and I, you know, I just said, like, I, I wonder if they have to pay royalties to Marvin Gaye, you know, um, for, I forget the name of the song that it sounds like I had it in my head, but... Um, but it sounds exactly like this Marvin Gaye song, like like so close. It's got the cowbell in it. It's got party people noises in the background through it. It's got the same rhythm. It's got the same feel. It's relatively the same bass line. But then, um, you know, it's sung in a high in a falsetto, which is similar to how Marvin's singing on it. And then, and I was like, well, and I researched it, and there is no mention of them crediting it or like, you know. And I'm like, wow, that's. I I have a problem with that. I have a problem because like. You know, people were like, well, you know, art, you know, people steal, you know, that's the way art is. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. It's one thing to, like, take the Mona Lisa and copy it 98%, you know, and then just, like, throw some patterns on it. And it's like, yeah, we know Andy Warhol did a version of that. But that was, there was a contextual reason for that. All right. Or, how how serious know? are you about this? This is interesting. So, yeah. uh, because, uh, you know, one argument, obviously, is that every, so if everything is pastiche, mm -hmm. then, you know, you need you need a copy culture, and actually many of the best aspects of our culture are copy culture, mm -hmm. and you know, you're, you expect that to happen, you expect themes to recapitulate, you know, but are you, how serious are you about the idea that, you know, well, so is it just about crediting, or is it literally about copyright, and like, you know, like the, mm. the Marvin Gaye estate should get a check from uh, that's the Robin thing. That's the byproduct, the main thing is that it's lazy, and that it's too calculated, it's too easy. It's really easy to make a hit song. It's not that hard. Um, it's how many gates do you have to get through to actually get to the point at which the distribution guardians are like, oh yeah, let's put this out here and let's put some money behind it. And it's make a it really happen. interesting thought. Yeah. It's, it's just it's just very very lazy. And it's um, and when I see like you know Pharrell, even like Pharrell when he you know he's kind of making a resurgence now and he was on the Daft Punk thing. When I heard that song, that Daft Punk song, I knew it was Pharrell. And then the two things that happened, and I was like, this is a funky track. It's really funky. My favorite part of the track is when he's not singing. And when he is singing, it sounds like scratch vocals because he's, not a, he's, he's a terrible singer. And so I was thinking, like, so is the only reason they left his vocals on? Obviously, he wrote it, the, the line, or co-wrote it. 
did they leave it on because it's Pharrell and like everyone loves Pharrell? You know, like it, is that the value or is the value that they want the music to sound great? Because to me, in my opinion, as a producer, I would have said like, that's great Pharrell, now let's get a real singer to sing it. It's a really hooky line, I can't get it out of my head, but let's get a real singer in there. I just, I'm suspicious of people that are celebrated as like very original, like Kanye mm. West is another person that, that in the hip hop world, like he really prides himself on like knowing what's underground and bringing that out in his music, but he's also very good at not crediting those people. Mm. Um, and I think there's a danger when uh, people just let that let that fly, and and it. At the very least, yeah. call them out on it. Is that, is that what totally? And I and I will, I will, and I think it's one thing to like have someone who's n not experienced in music to like call out something, and people are like, well, yeah, you think you could do better or something like that, or like, how do you know? What would you know? And I think it's it's important for people that do have experience in music, if they feel strongly about something, to say something. About there are two things I, I I need to ask you about. One of which is definitely stupid. The other which is hopefully less stupid. But the first thing is about Pharrell voice. Don't you kind of like the, just the, the forget about Pharrell specifically, sure. but don't you kind of like the idea of like jagged, shitty vocals in a way? Like I kind of find the idea of in this algorithmic era, uh -huh. the idea of like bad singing, it's kind of, I, I kind of find it appealing that we would have some, because like yeah. seeing the guts of things, seeing like the kind of the stuffing on the couch sticking out, you know what I mean? I think there's something sloppy about it that can Well, perhaps, nice. per, perhaps karaoke had a lot to do with like making that more acceptable, but I think for me, it's like I figure if you're gonna have like a lot of money it also I'm okay with vocals that aren't perfect like I, I, I it's not that I need things to be you know I don't sing perfectly at all like I'm flat a lot of the times and things like that or you listen to uh, you know Billie Holiday she was constantly a little flat you know there's there are there are examples when a calling person, out Billie Holiday now yeah I know <laughs> Billy wherever you are you know sharp it up um, but, like, it's like oh, I didn't know I didn't know no but I, I think I think I don't have a pro I just have a problem when things get really super popular and very celebrated and then but I I just want it to be I just I I I love great vocalists you know I like to hear a, a person's voice that's that's being sincere and has the expertise. And, it's like and fantasy. You want them to respect the process. It's the way that people were angry with George Lucas because he was not respecting his own Star Wars mythology. Oh yeah, and it's like so similarly. You want them you, yeah. like if you're making this music, if you're going to be making hit records, yeah. respect it and like make yeah. give it a high sheen and do it right. Oh totally. I mean, it's like when I say um, like if you were to take uh, what's a modern like the Foo Fighters and you put them next to um, like a really happening cool band, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and the Foo Fighters get up and they would just destroy that band because the music, the sheer level of musicianship, like in their pinkies is like just super, they might physically destroy that. Band. Yeah, they would definitely it would be physically very, destroy very sad that. For yeah. yeah, no, it would be very oh, sad. See, the other for, thing you said, for, the other, the, another thing you raised is this idea of, you know, it's easy to make a hit record. The key thing is just getting to the right people, getting through those mm -hmm. barriers mm -hmm. and sort of getting to the point. And I wonder, I mean, how do you feel about because it sounds to me as though you've gotten through those barriers. You know, I mean, you're in a place where you will be listened to. You know, you, you're at a place where yeah. you've kind of built a career where you have this legitimacy and you can make things happen. And I wonder, I mean, is that a feeling that you have like, you know, yeah, I solidly feel that way? Or is it more a feeling of like, that's true right now and that might not be true, you know, in two years? Or sort of, you know, it, it, do you feel tentative about it or is that? Well, I think I, think I have hope for sure. Um, and, you know, 
everybody needs a great tune. You know, everybody needs a good club anthem for the summer and stuff like that. I'm all about it. I, I love I love dancing and I love like good music that just you know it's just like ah oh, I love this tune. But you know when I listen to Janelle Monet, you know her her voice is incredible. You know she's like insanely talented. You know she Who knows? might be a robot from the future. I know I know exactly. I mean we'll see we'll see how she chooses her path. But but her raw talent level is. She's like, you know, kind of like James Brown reincarnated in a, in a way. Um, and, uh, you know, even her new project with Erica Badu is like very intriguing. Do you think there are 15 Janelle Monets or 500 Janelle Monets who kind of just haven't gotten through the gatekeepers and who can't? And sure. sure. I mean, and also there's something that happens with people that are like that, like Azalea Banks, you know, two on two is massive and it was an inc- it's an incredible song. Like, I love it. I think it's so ill. But like, I wonder, I know that she's working with Missy Elliott now and I love Missy Elliott. Missy Elliott, you know, was killing in the 90s. You know, I always called her the Bjork of hip hop. But, um, you know, interesting videos, cool, weird, abstract, absurdist um, contrasts in the videos and just great imagination and funky as fuck. And then, you know, and then a bunch of bullshit club hip hop, uh, like fake gangster shit. And then and then now we're kind of like, oh, there's odd future. And there's kind of like this bubbling in the last like 10 years is bubbling of this like underground kind of hip hop culture kind of coming up. And. So when I saw Zaley Banks, I was like, ah, oh, this is refreshing. This is great. But it's just that song, and that's all I've gotten from her so far. So I'm a little scared. I just hope that that when someone has that raw talent, that when they're taken in by you know, there are people like, yeah, that's the talent. Let me work with you, kid. I hope that they're strong enough in their will that they have a, that they're able to have their vision fostered to to carry on through. But you know, that's kind of a natural selection process, I suppose. But um, you know, I have, I have, I have hope. I always have hope. I just, I think that we need to be more critical about. You know, people are critical about me and my shows, and I, I enjoy it. It's a conversation. What is? I mean, so what is the most incisive criticism? Like, what's the criticism? Is like you're paying attention, you basically get what I'm about, and you have a problem with it. That, yeah, I mean, so is, is there anything like that that's like, yeah, that's pretty on point? I mean, I definitely. I've had people on Twitter say stuff, you know. Um, that's really the only social thing I really do. But, like, um, they'll say, say a comment about, like, yeah, it was kind of, like, in the middle. It was a little bit, you know, slow or whatever. And I'll be like, you're completely right. You're completely right. That was, it was slow. I could have done better. So it's more like specific about the particular performance rather than anything about like your larger. Well, sometimes people say, like, about. Why, is, why don't get it? Why do people think this guy's funny? You know, or whatever, that kind of stuff. And then I'll like, I'll address them. I love addressing people directly. It's great because I like discussions. And so um, oftentimes they'll just tell me why they don't. Think it's good. And then I'll say, like, well, here's a couple examples of like things I'm influenced by or whatever. I like the discussion. I don't like it when people just draw a line. I, I, it's, it's weak to just say something and walk away. And that's the internet promotes a lot of that bullshit where people, someone's having a bad day and they like see something and it's kind of popular. And they're like, well, this, is, this sucks. The asses of dragons and it's so gay. I can't believe how gay it is. It's so gay, super gay. And, and then they just walk away. And it's like, no, you can't get away with that. No, tell me why it's gay. <laughs> like, tell me why it's gay and tell me why you're relating, you're using the word dragons. I don't know. But just like, just, you know, like, like, just explain yourself. And I don't mind. I, I think everyone should have an opinion. I think that that's important. But I think that people need to be held accountable for the comments that they make. I, I say a lot of inflammatory Things that t- I'm not like known for that, but I will at times. You know, like I'm sure if I met Pharrell at a party, he'd be like, "Dude, I'd be in about you." 
what you've been saying. You know, I'll be like, well, I, you know, I'm, you're a nice guy, you know, but here's why. And then we can get into a discussion about it, you know, or he'll just hate me. But I, I think that the discussion is the important thing, and I just think that the internet is not promoting responsibility to or accountability for discussion, or I mean, for a statement and then thereby create a discussion. The thing I wonder about is that you seem like someone who is pretty steeped in what we used to call youth culture, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, you're someone who's kind of listening to top four. You know, you're engaged yeah. with this, uh, and it's part of your work to be engaged with it. Yeah. But you're, you know, you're in your early 40s, mm-hmm. and how do you feel? You know, your relationship to this universe, this cultural universe that is very youth-oriented. Mm. Um, how, and, and also, like, how does it shape your self-presentation and how, that's, how you edit and change that over time? Is this something you think about, like, aging? And... Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, my thing is I want to be able to appeal to as many humans as possible, but young humans specifically are, like, super important to me because... I really want to have a, a connection with them because, well, I mean, it's like I don't really, I don't have kids. I don't know if I will have kids, but that's my contribution in a way. It's like I identify with me being 16, 17, 18 years old because that was like some of the most transformative. Do you years. imagine like weird kids in Montana just totally. kind of like hitting upon your videos on YouTube? Yeah, yeah. And I walk down the street, you know, and a lot of young kids will say like, yo, man, I saw your boba. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. There'll be or a lot of kids. The great thing, I was in Miami mm-hmm. and he's like young, like 20-year-old Cuban-American kids came up and they're like, yo, man, I saw your, your TED Talk. It was like so great. And I'm like, that's the shit. That's Wow, that's, that's really cool. About. I'm like, that's that's what I'm talking about. Education, science, the arts. The other things, cool, but those are the most important things for advancing human culture. It's science, art. Those are the things that are curious and explorative, and that's what human beings are. They're explorers. Do you ever that. wish you'd become a scientist, or do you kind of feel like you are <laughs> a scientist? I think I'm I think I'm an anthropological like I'm an anthropologist and slash uh, science lover, I would say. Um, I, I involve myself in technology. I love the, in, the intersection between technology and human interface and interaction, but more importantly, what does it do as a tool to people's experiences and does it distract? And, you know, uh, I'm interested in those things. I'm interested in, I have a lot of friends that, you know, are developers of, uh, of websites or inventions or processes or interfaces for musical instruments and things like that. I'm always interested in that because. I'm, I'm interested in what engages people's curiosity, what's useful and what's not useful. There's a lot of things that people come up with, and it's like, ah, oh, it doesn't resonate. If there's too much of a learning curve, we need something that's intuitive immediately so people can engage that curious part of themselves. Because if people are occupied with things that are creative and curious, it only increases their intelligence and their understanding of the world. It gives them options to be able to have multiple perspectives at any moment in time, and that's incredibly powerful and I think that the reason why there's so much trouble and violence and division is because people just get ingrained to just see it in just a few different ways and to react in a way that they see and mimic and so being able to create more free agents of perspective is is incredible. You've mentioned that you're not very political and I wonder and perhaps that's not the right characterization but I wonder if that partly flows from what sounds like a kind of empathy. It's like just the ability to kind of see, you know, you grew up in Montana, you know, kind of you kind of get where people are coming from. I mean, is that mm-hmm. what it is to some degree? Just going to be like kind of like, yeah, like 
people have different arguments, they sit in different places. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not interested in politics because I think politics, I think they function in the current system. Things happen because of it, and, and it has an importance in that way, but on a human evolutionary progressive level, it, it, it is irrelevant, it is a distraction. The polit politics are just like, uh, kind of just an interference game that's being run um, where other things are happening underneath it. And it's not a conspiracy thing, it's just the way things happen. I always relate all of life to high school in a social format. I look at the how high school organizes itself and how all the different classes and how does that all work? How do people become popular? How does someone become outcast? What actions are performed to either gain or, or lose or just stay in the middle or become invisible? Like all of those things, the high school model applies to, it's scalable to any situation. So there are like, there's like scientific, technological innovations that are happening. There's cultural change that's happening. And then on top of you have this thin layer of politics that's above that, mm -hmm. but it's really this stuff that's roiling under the surface and like they just have to respond to kind of whatever that is. Yeah, they're like trying to organize it and you know keep it organized and you know you know the, there's the whole thing about like you know monetary system and stuff like that but but aside from that the reason why I'm not political is because I don't really think I think the most effective way to or the the best way or the most effective way to to influence society is to encourage people's imagination. Um, and interest in science and possibilities like that because then that projects their creativity outward instead of being in a, a, a loop, a feedback loop inside of their head about I can't pay the bills, I've got to do this, oh, this person doesn't like me at work, you know, all of these like various things that we, that we can't help but to be consumed with. But when you have an out, when you have a creative out, it reduces that ability. It, it, it enables you to shift into a progression as opposed to just getting locked into something and going, well, this is the way it is. Life's tough, you know, and that's kind of it. And you just like continue life that way. And then maybe at the end you might like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> you know? so, so you see, you're fundamentally optimistic. You feel like this is a moment when there is a lot of scientific technological change that's happening that is kind of creating possibilities for progress. And, and so is that a fair characterization? Like you feel? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of it that's used for control as well, you know? I mean, there's, uh, you know, but I'm hoping that people see the benevolent side because essentially my, I mean, someone said that was very Ayn Randian, but, uh, but or Ayn Rand, but, but like I, I, I just see like, if someone's selfish, if someone like, like let's say a head of a massive uh, multinational corporation, is very selfish and wants to have control. The, by killing people and by um, you know creating false value for things and like subverting things or like putting a bunch of disinformation or like releasing a product that is knowingly harmful to people, but like getting around it legally, blah blah blah. Like that's an inefficient way of being a selfish or, for lack of a better word, evil person. They're being very terrible at being selfish. If you were really selfish and you wanted to really have a lot of control, you would figure out a way to have everyone very satisfied with their lives, but in a truly satisfied way, not just like an opiate. Because it's durable when it's yeah. genuine. Yeah. And and people 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 like you. Like if people if you're in a party and people respect you and you respect people in return, but let's say you have better skill at organizing things, so you become more of a central hub of some a connector or a maven. Um, that is a much better world to live in. You can still have the decadent shit that you want to have, and you can still like do all the crazy whatever things that you want because you have access to the resources, but you also have a world that you can move freely within, and people will help. 
So I'd never understood the idea of like people who just like are corrupt and like this is the way to. It's like no, you guys are just really shitty at being evil. You're like terrible at it. How do you so? You seem like someone who who draws so much energy from the people you're around, and also just you know observing and kind of absorbing what you get from the people around you. Yet you've spent a huge amount of time on tour, uh, and I, I imagine that can be quite isolating in a way. So I mean, how do you do being alone? Hmm. Well, I mean, I grew up as an only child, so I spent a lot of time in my bedroom looking at you know Star Wars action figures and creating scenarios and melting things in the garage with gasoline. But um, <laughs> that actually sounds really dangerous. <laughs> it's very dangerous, but you know, <laughs> hey, I was a dangerous kid. It was edgy. No, I, I was just interested in special effects. But I, but I. Um, yeah, I grew up as an only child, so I spent a lot of time with myself. And my mom was kind of solitary in a way, you know, very good at, like, you know, she, she loved me, but we both, like, respected our space. My dad was also kind of a solitary person, so I was kind of surrounded by, like, these professional, like, people that were good at being with themselves yeah. alone. And, um, and, and I you wound up having this job where you're, like... Yeah. out in the world and like super I mean, I, I played in bands, you know, like I like being in organizations and stuff like that. I just realized towards the end of playing in like my 25th band in Seattle, you know, 2003 from 1990-2003, I was like, how am I going to make a living at all? And I was like, well, in high school I used to just go around being an idiot by myself on stage doing impressions and, you know, just like, blah, 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 check this out. Oh, oh what about this? Did you know about the, you know, like, and I was like, why don't I try that again? And, and people, people enjoyed it, and I was like, okay, this is great. I get to make decisions in the moment I'm responsible for the whole so thing. So it was when you were like around 30 that you kind of hit upon this yeah. thing that started making sense and fitting what you cared about. Yeah, I mean, I dabbled with it throughout the 90s, but I didn't really think, I didn't go, oh, let's see if I can make this a thing, a career. I think a lot of people will find that very inspiring, that uh, it kind of took you a little <laughs> while to, to hit upon that. Well, it, you know, I mean, I hope that, I, I mean, you know, one of my, one of my, the guys that I kind of look up to a lot is Brian Eno, and Brian Eno is like, I've had the good fortune of, you know, becoming his friend over time and spending time with him, and he's inspiring because he never has lost his childlike curiosity for everything. I mean, he is interested in anything. If someone is wearing a, a sock in a weird position, like, and their pant leg is a little bit higher or something, and there's a strange stitching on it, he'll be he'll go over to them and he'll be like, "Why do you why do you wear this like this?" And they'll be like, "This like, oh, that's very interesting." It's like I see now, you know, in 1973, you know, like he's very people want to be seen. Yeah, you know, like he he's there and he and he I mean he's present and he's curious. And I, and I think that hopefully throughout my entire life, I don't ever want to, I don't want to limit myself by the stage that I'm at in my age. Um, I don't want that to be a factor. I want it to be a factor in so much as whatever experiences I've accumulated guides me to wherever I'm interested in going. But I never want to, you know, get too tied in with uh, the system to be able to kind of like be so plugged in that I can't remove myself immediately um, because I've always been an observer and I, and I like staying observational not to be like not to separate myself or not to be disconnected but just to be flexible to be able to move freely and um, I think that that's you know that's the thing that's I have to protect 
you know, like the Beastie Boys said, like you have to fight for your right to party. It's uh, it's totally true. It's like you have to like if you start to feel sedentary or you feel too domestic and you're not liking it, then or whatever you're doing in life and you're not liking it, you have to listen to that. And you have to you do have something. to fight for your right to party with yourself. Yes, sometimes. Exactly. Well, you, you're 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 your greatest relationship. You know, and a lot of people kind of exert themselves outside of themselves and forget about the fact that they have a relationship with themselves. Like whatever is observing the world is something is 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 a duality. You know that that you have to develop a relationship to the the observer, the observer, non-observer, the observer and the experiencer. And so, I think whatever encourages that, and you call it intuition, you know, sixth sense, or uh, you know, whatever it is. Or a person that looks for signs, whatever your style is, like just listen to that and 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 do something about it. And and it, it sounds and it's harder for some than others, but I think that knowing that you always have choice uh, is incredibly powerful. Reggie, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh yeah, of course, my pleasure. It was awesome. Great meeting you. <laughs>